0: All right, well, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, as we come to your word this afternoon, we ask that you would open up our eyes, God, that you would cause us to shout, cause us to sing, cause us to rejoice in who you are and what you've done for us, that we would see you as creator, see you as the God who keeps covenant with his people, the one who dwells among us, who loves us and who is with us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, have you ever been on a tour where you had a tour guide who was walking backwards, talking a million miles a minute, you pointing to all these different things, and you were just like, whoa, what's going on? Um, if you've If you're a college student, maybe you remember, some of you maybe wasn't that long ago, I still remember going on a couple campus visits and just those tours and just being totally overwhelmed. Like, here's that building and here's that building and just all these things. I was like, oh, I have no idea what's going on. Well, contrast that with a tour of a historical building and a historical attraction where probably the person who's taking you on the tour is getting paid much better than the the college student who was taking you on that tour. And the guide takes you through and explains all the significance uh, of of the building and of the things that are that happened in this building and what what makes this place so special uh, for me, I had an experience like that when I was in Philadelphia with my friend uh, several years ago. We went and saw Independence Hall and we saw the Liberty bell and just being in this room where these documents were written and where all these important people were, it's, and and all of the information that he was giving to us, and I was like, "This is crazy!" Like to be in this place and to see all these things. Um, there are those kind of that's kind of two different ways of of going through a tour. Well, as we go through Genesis, I want to be your tour guide. <laughs> I want to help you as we go through this book, which it, it can have a lot of overwhelming things. So the last two weeks, I think, we're kind of like the campus tour, right? Um, walking backwards, pointing at all these buildings, covering a lot of information, and maybe you felt like, whoa, that was really overwhelming. Or to change the analogy a little bit, uh, it's like a 30,000-foot flyover, right? We, get, we got the big picture of what's going on. Uh, we got the big theological overview of Genesis. We got the, we got the huge Creation Week story all in one, in one package. But this week, I want to zoom in a little bit more. And it's still... This is going to be a little bit more like touring Independence Hall. Uh, but the guide, obviously... In that situation, can't give you every single detail that you want to know. Uh, the guide is going to pique your interest on certain things. And the guide is going to encourage you to go home and to dig into some of these things. To go home and to look up uh, some of these things for yourself. So, are you ready? All right, here we go. So, But first, I do want to really quickly, we're going to do the 30,000 foot view. Just quick recap of where we've been. We talked about Genesis being a book of origins, right? We see the origin of the universe. We see the origin of, of man and woman being created. We see the origin of the people of Israel. So, all those things we're going to see origins in Genesis. And then we see these, this kind of theological framework of creation, fall, redemption, and consummation. And we're kind of right in the middle of that. We're kind of right in the creation and fall story right now. And that's going to play out for us through the rest of the book of Genesis. We're introduced to this idea of covenants, of God making covenants with people. And actually, today in chapter 2, we're going to be introduced to covenants for the first time in Genesis. Uh, themes of kingdom and temple are going to be kind of some new stuff today related to that. And then how does Genesis point... To Jesus. That's, that's going to be a huge emphasis for us as we're going through this book. And again, this booklet that is on the back table there is Jesus in the Old Testament. A great resource to help us think through these things. How do these stories, how do these things in Genesis point us to Christ? And if you weren't here for the last two weeks, or you weren't here, especially two weeks ago, I'd encourage you uh, to go back. The sermons are on the website. The introductory one kind of covers all of these topics a little bit more so you can kind of get up to speed. Well, the last two weeks, I made this argument that we find ourselves in a world with many competing narratives and many conflicting worldviews that are trying to answer some of the deepest questions that people have about life, questions about existence, questions about purpose, questions about morality, things like good versus evil. Again, that's a theme we see in Genesis. So on a very serious level, with a week like the week we just had, with another school shooting, we're hearing words like evil and darkness, anger and outrage. People are asking questions. Why? Why does this keep happening? On a less serious level, but... Still seeing the collision of worldviews. We had an interesting happening uh, this week. It was the first time since the end of World War II that Ash Wednesday and Valentine's Day fell on the same day. So I don't know if any of you caught the significance of that. But there's one day that's focusing on repentance, prayer, fasting, self-denial, right? People get ashes on their forehead and the sign of a cross. And someone says, remember that you are dust and to dust you shall return. It's a picture of Adam and Eve in Genesis 3, the words that the Lord says to them, which we're going to be seeing next week. So you have that celebration. And the other is a celebration of romantic love, right? Cards and candy and flowers. And this idea of romantic love is going to be something that we're going to be introduced to a little bit here in in Genesis chapter 2 for the first time also in the Bible, So there are there are conflicting things going on. There are conflicting worldviews. I said it last week. I'm going to say it again exactly the same way. Genesis is as relevant as ever. People in this world, people are desperate for answers. They're desperate to find order and meaning amidst the chaos of life. They're desperate desperate to find rest from their weariness. So today, we're going to get a zoomed-in look at the finer details of day six. We saw days one through six, the creation story, and then God resting on day seven last week. Today, chapter two is a zoomed-in view of day six. This is not a, it's not a separate creation account. It's not a contradictory account to chapter one. It's just more of that focused, zoomed-in account. So let's go to the text Genesis chapter 2, verses 4 through 25. These are the generations of the heaven and the earth when they were created, in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. And a mist was going up from the land, and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Delium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother, and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. The word of the Lord. We're going to look at this chapter in four parts, as you see there on your outline. We're going to look at the backdrop. We're going to look at a perfect location. We're going to look at a perfect vocation and probation. And then we're going to look at a perfect equation. First, the backdrop, verses 4 through 7. It says, these are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created. In the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, verse 4. We talked about this, that this introduction here this phrase these are the generations this happens 11 times throughout the book of genesis so genesis is structured around this phrase these are the generations and every other time except for this one it's about people right we're going to see it again in chapter 5 verse 1 these are the generations of adam but in chapters 2 3 and 4 we're introduced these are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created so if chapters One, two, three, and four are going to be kind of this introduction, this kind of creation story, this first family. And then we're going to get into all the different lineages and family lines. And then something else happens that's very interesting. You may have noticed this. As we go through chapter 1 in Genesis, we we saw the name God appeared, I think, 34 or 35 times. And it was the Hebrew word Elohim. It's the kind of the generic word for God. It's the, the word that talks about God as the creator. Now, if you notice here in verse 4, what does it say? In the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. And you'll notice there that Lord is all caps, right? It's all capitalized. Well, this is, this is Yahweh. This is the divine name. It's the name where God revealed himself to Moses in Exodus three fourteen and said, I am who I am. I am the only God. I am the covenant-keeping God. And this, this name, Yahweh, is used most of the time in relation to God being the God of Israel, the God who keeps covenant with the people of Israel. He makes covenant and he keeps covenant. So here, when when these words are put together, the Lord God, Yahweh Elohim, we have A couple different things going on we have an emphasis on god as the creator right the god who is who is transcendent and who is far above elohim and then the god who is imminent the god who is near the god who is the covenant keeping god yahweh so yahweh elohim he's the one who dwells with his people and we're starting to see these ideas of covenant and creation and that's going to be a big theme as these things start to merge together it's going to be a big theme throughout genesis So both of those aspects are on display here in these first few verses, particularly in verse 7, where God is intimately involved in the creation of Adam and he is handcrafting him. Look at verse 7, it says, Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. It's a very intimate forming of Adam. This word here for formed, this verb form is also the same as the word for potter that is used in Jeremiah chapter 18 where it talks about God being the potter and forming and shaping and it's talking about God's sovereignty over the nations and over kingdoms and God being able to to do things as he wishes. Uh, So this idea of God here forming Adam is a very intimate involvement and it's talking a lot about God's sovereignty and God's God's power and also his intimate involvement. We think about this idea of, of something being handcrafted, right? You think about seeing a, a, a label on something that you buy that says made in the USA versus made in, you know, wherever, fill in the blank, any any other country. And I think the debate for the most part isn't always where, right? It isn't always where That other thing was made, but how it was made. If you're a collector of of little trinkets and things that that are handcrafted and and need to be have a lot of time and effort put into them, if you find something that that you like that's one of your things that you like to, to buy, and it says handcrafted in the USA versus you know made in wherever, you're always gonna go for the thing that says handcrafted in the USA, right? If you know that someone put time and effort and quality into that item, quality products, handmade, you're always going to go for that. And so there's this idea here of of God handcrafting Adam. He's not just pumped out of a a machine, out of a, um, what's the line I'm thinking of? Assembly line, yes, assembly line. He's not just, Adam's not just coming out of an assembly line. He is handcrafted. So we see that here in verse 7, and then we're going to see that again with the making of woman in verses 21 to 23. So that's kind of the backdrop here of this chapter. We have God being intimately involved. We're introduced to God as as Yahweh Elohim, the the covenant-keeping God. And then we come to the perfect location in verses 8 to 14. Verse 8, it says, The Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. So God, again, even this this picture of God himself planting this garden, right? Putting in the handiwork. God cares about this. He does this himself. He he plants this garden, and then he puts the man there whom he had formed. Verses 9 Verse 9, it talks about the, the trees that the Lord caused to spring up. And we're introduced to two trees here. It's a very interesting symbolism. We have the tree of life. We have the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Trees in the Bible are very symbolic. Uh, in Proverbs chapter 3, verse 18, wisdom is, is associated with the tree of life. And in Psalm 1 and in Jeremiah 17, those who trust in the Lord are compared to a tree that remains green, a tree that doesn't wither even when the drought comes. So there's pictures of of trees giving life. And then the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. We're going to come to this a little bit more in the next section and then obviously next week uh, in Genesis 3 we're going to see more about the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Then in chapter or in verse uh, 10 we're introduced to a river. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden and there it divided and became four rivers. So it starts off as one river flowing from the garden. It divides and it flows out to all the rest of the world and it's the source of life. One river from God's garden that's going to come and it's going to flow out and it's going to water the whole earth. So this picture here of of the tree and of the river showing that God is the source of life. That everything good, it comes from him. He is our source. It goes on there in verses 11 to 14 to 14 to describe the rivers and and the gold and the things that are there in the land. Then we come to our next section, a perfect vocation and probation, verses 15 through 17. Verse 15, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. This language here, these words, work and keep, in other places in the Old Testament, are usually used for priests. It's the work that God gave the priests to work and to keep the the temple. So Eden, many commentators make this connection that Eden is a temple garden. It's the place where God dwells with his people. There's a, there's a garden that is pictured as a temple and Adam is a priest in the temple who is put there to take care of it. The tree of life and this river that are in the temple, I would encourage you, uh, Ezekiel chapter 47 and Revelation chapter 21 and 22. We're going to be looking at those two ch- revelation chapters a little bit later, but this imagery of, of the river and the trees and the temple, this starts here in Genesis, and it's going to go really throughout the whole Bible. Uh, There's a book that I want to recommend to you. It's on the back side of that sheet there under the recommended resources for today. And I was trying to think of a word to describe this book, and all I could think about was Daniel Humbert, because Daniel uses the word rad all the time. And I was like, this is a rad book, okay? Um, I had to read this book in seminary. There's a lot of books in seminary that are like absolutely the opposite of rad, Um, boring and like hundreds and hundreds of pages. This book is called God Dwells Among Us, The subtitle: Expanding Eden to the Ends of the Earth. This book is all about how this picture of Eden as a temple and Adam and Eve were put there to, to be priests in the temple, to take care of the temple, and then how those themes go from there throughout the whole rest of the Old Testament and the people of Israel, and then into the church in the New Testament, and then to the new heavens and the new earth. And it follows this progression. And it's one of those, like, you're reading this book, like, this is awesome. Like, I never thought of this stuff before. Um, And it's not like, again, this isn't some, like, they're trying to create something that's not there. It's just, like, these themes are in the Bible, and they're kind of bringing it together in a comprehensive way. So uh, if you're, like, interested in that kind of thing and you don't have any good books to read right now, I would highly recommend Uh, God Dwells Among Us. You can check that out. So this idea um, of Eden expanding, of God's image bearers expanding and being fruitful and multiplying, it's connected back with what we talked about last week with the cultural mandate, Genesis 1.28, when God told Adam and Eve to Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth, subdue it, and have dominion over it. We see that same kind of work happening in verses 19 and 20 where Adam names all of the animals. So again, this idea here of of working and keeping, of having dominion over the animals. This is something that was uh, very important. It was a God-given task. When we think about this word work, I think sometimes we cringe, right? And we think... Work must just be a product of the fall. Work must just be a necessary evil that exists because of the fall. Well, you might feel like that some days, and I get that. But God has given us work to do as a part of His good creation design. Work was given to humans before the fall. And it's not only spiritual work, it's not only priests in the temple. It's not only pastors and missionaries who are doing spiritual work, right? Gardeners, farmers, teachers, engineers. This is all part of the design for humanity to multiply and to flourish and to fill the earth. Young people, kids, <laughs> all of you. You're going to spend the most, of, most of the rest of your life working, right? Right? When you grow up, you're going to be working for most of the rest of your life. So why not begin praying now? Why not begin seeking God now for wisdom and direction about the work that you're going to do for the rest of your life? College students, maybe you're dreading the reality of, oh no, I'm going to graduate soon and then I have to get a real job, right? Some of you are looking forward to it, but some of you might be dreading it. You might be dreading it. Why not start praying now and seeking God's direction now about your future work prospects and opportunities? Don't wait until it hits you in the face and you're like, oh no, what do I do? Career people, maybe you're frustrated with the job that you have. I get it. Work can be hard. Work can be frustrating. It can be demanding. It can feel pointless at times. But why not begin praying now and seeking God's wisdom, seeking God's direction for the rest of your work career? The next section there, a perfect probation. This is a, you might be like, what are you talking about here, probation? Verses 16 to 17, The Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. We call this a probationary period. So what's going on here? Why, is this, why this command? This is actually the first command that's given in the Bible to humans. First thing they're told that they, they cannot do, they cannot eat, they can eat from any tree, but they cannot eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And there are all kinds of questions that come up here, right? Evil, how can evil, we talked about this a couple of weeks ago, the origin of evil, right? This is one of those great mysteries that we kind of have to step back and say, mystery we don't we don't know we don't God hasn't fully explained it to us but there's no sin yet right Adam and Eve haven't sinned and yet we're introduced to this idea of the knowledge of good and evil so evil evil exists before the fall okay wrap your mind around that so that's one of the things and then what is this testing this probationary period all about did Adam and Eve have the freedom and or the ability to obey God fully and not sin? There are deep theological and philosophical debates and discussions over these issues. And we just cannot obviously get into that and dive very deeply into that. But there are people who have, have wrestled through these things and written about these things. Uh, so reformed or covenant theologians... Would call this the covenant of works or the covenant of creation. Uh, again, I have on the back of that sheet, there's an article by Justin Taylor. It was a blog post on the Gospel Coalition website. There's a PDF on the resources, or you can just go look it up uh, on the Gospel Coalition website. There's an article called, Why I Believe in the Covenant of Works. And if this is something that you're interested in uh, about this probationary period, I would really encourage you to dig into that and and what this idea... And again, the the word covenant is not used here. So some people will say, well, there's no covenant happening here. But he kind of unpacks and explains why there is a a covenant of works that God established with Adam, with this command to obey God. And then we see there... um, the, the result, uh, if, if you eat of it, you shall surely die. And this is something that we're going to be talking about next week in chapter 3 as we talk about the fall. The last section then is a perfect equation. Verses 18 to 25. We've been looking at a perfect creation Remember chapter 1, verse 31. God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. But interestingly here, we see in in verse 18, the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. So there is an imperfection, if you will, in creation. Not in the sense that God made a mistake, but there is something, there is, there is an incompletion. Adam is not complete. He is not perfect on his own. It is not good that the man should be alone. And I would argue that we were made, we were created by God for companionship. God says, I will make a helper fit for him. And the sense here is complementarity, that they would complement each, each other and the Hebrew word is really means matching it's someone that would match him so helper here does not just mean Adam needed someone to cook the meals and to do the laundry right he needed a helper someone to match him someone to compliment him someone for companionship then God in verse nineteen and twenty God parades all of the animals past Adam so that he can name them and you can almost feel the anticipation Adam looking as the animals go by is is it that one God is is that my companion is is this the helper that you have for me and Animals go, the animals go, you know, finally, okay, the the beast of the field, right? The one that can help me work and and till the garden and keep the garden. This has got to be the one, right? But it wasn't. End of verse 20. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So God, he puts Adam to sleep. Verse 21. Takes one of his ribs and literally builds a woman. If you're reading in the ESV, there's a footnote there. If you look down on the bottom, it says built. So the word, he literally, he builds Eve out of the rib of Adam. And then we get to the first lines of poetry in the Bible. Adam is ecstatic. He is now complete. He has a helper fit for him, matching him. This poetry here, verse 23, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. Flesh, She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Ladies, you might be saying, if somebody put that in a Valentine's Day card for me, I would smack them. But this is, this is beautiful. This is a beautiful picture of what God did to make Eve and to compliment Adam. Then we're given this first description of God's design, God's intent for marriage in verse 24. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. This is not just some social construct that the Hebrew people invented. They didn't just say, oh, well, we we came up with this thing called marriage, and now we need to like go back and put it in in the Genesis account. This was God's design. This isn't just some optional method of, of companionship or that we use for population growth. It's the very thing that God designed for us. And how do we know that outside of of Genesis chapter 2. On Matthew chapter 19, when the Pharisees were questioning Jesus about whether it was lawful for a man to divorce his wife, Jesus replies, "Have you not read?" I love that. <laughs> He's pointing them back to Genesis. It's written, right? Have you missed it? Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? Genesis 1:27. Jesus goes on and said therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh so they are no longer two but one flesh what therefore God has joined together let not man separate. I'm not going to stand up here and rail against all of the things in our culture like you know what they are all the things that go against this definition of marriage. There's many things. I want to submit to you that anything other than this equation, one man and one woman brought together by God is out of bounds. It's sinful. Any relationship Like, hey, we're just going to, we don't need to get married. We'll just be together, do our thing. That's not the way it was designed, okay? And again, I could sit up here and go off about all these things in our culture. But one of the reasons that I feel like I can't do that is because I've seen committed Christians I've seen people I've known and served with on the mission field who have left the mission field and got divorced, who have not been an example and a model of this. And it's heartbreaking. This isn't just something that the, the bad world out there is doing. Go read statistics about divorce in the church. It's, it's heartbreaking, right? It's heartbreaking to see our communities, to see our work relationships, to see our, our human relationships broken and, and devastated by sin. So what do we do? What hope is there? Do we just throw in the towel and say, well, it's just too hard, so we're just going to give up because everybody else is giving up? What if there was one who left the perfect location, the paradise of heaven, to come into a broken and sin-scarred world, to do work To do a job that would cost him everything. To lay down his life to obey God perfectly. The second Adam succeeding where the first Adam failed. To show us what a faithful marriage looks like. Christ the bridegroom rescuing his people, his bride, and presenting her spotless and blameless. Ushering in a new heavens and a new earth where the effects of the fall are undone, where sin and death are undone. This is what we were created for, this is what we long for. We're given a glimpse of this at the end of of the Bible in Revelation chapter 21 and 22. And I love how the Lord did this, right? How he he began the Bible with this picture of of a garden and a river, this this temple imagery. And he's going to end it in the same way. Pay attention to the imagery here. Revelation chapter 21, 1 through 7. end of the chapter, the second to last verse, says, he who testifies to these things says, surely I am coming soon. And John says, amen, come, Lord Jesus. And that's what we say, right? Come, Lord Jesus. When we see, we haven't even gotten to chapter three yet, right? But we know it's coming. When we see the pain that sin brings into our world, into our work, into our relationships. We cry out, come Lord Jesus. We wait, we hope, we long with anticipation as we come to this table this afternoon. This is a foretaste of what's to come. This is a foretaste of the meal that we will celebrate together, forever. With our Lord, no, no crying, no pain, no tears. We're reminded as we come to the table that the Lord was broken on our behalf. His body was broken. His blood was poured out. This is a picture of what God has done for us in Christ. And we look back and we look forward. We look back celebrating what he's done and we look forward in anticipation of what will be.